Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. My name is, well, for today, Professor Mike Lewis, and I am joined by my favorite student in this off-semester season, Doug Battle. How are you, Doug? Mike, I'm doing well. First off, I appreciate the high praise as your favorite student in our one-student class. Um, But this weekend, no Georgia football because of Vanderbilt's COVID-slash-opt-out situation. The weekend was redeemed by the finale of The Mandalorian. I know you saw it, and I know from knowing me, you know how much I enjoyed it. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so we are doing something a little bit different today. No sports this week. Uh, Maybe a little bit of allusion to sports concepts, but what we are going to dig into is, well, we're going to take our basic idea of fandom, fandom analytics, and apply it to a cultural phenomena, and that is the show The Mandalorian. So to get us started, um, and let's let's let me almost put you on the clock here. So Doug, can you give me a one minute review of The Mandalorian? I love that you do that because you know that if you don't say one minute review, I'll talk about it for forty five minutes. Uh, we want a review or a recap here. Yeah, whatever you want, a little bit of both, perhaps. Okay. Well, first off, wow. Uh, This show has breathed new life into the Star Wars franchise, a franchise that Disney had previously sucked the life out of for for a lot of fans. Uh, But the show's about a bounty hunter who's supposed to be heartless and and callous, and he's got a bounty on a child and develops a soft spot for this child, finds out the Empire's after him, and uh, becomes his protector, protects the child, is tasked with delivering him to his own kind, and, and the child has a force, so that is the Jedi. Um, so, of course, you know, season two, the child's taken away, which I thought was a brilliant move by the producers because of the fan affinity for uh, for Baby Yoda, as they call him. But overall, man, uh, show show is phenomenal. It's got me excited about things to come in the Star Wars franchise. I'm not going to review the show. My thoughts will come out as we as we as we dig in and discuss a little bit of background. I mean, I'll I'll say this: I'm I'm 53 years old, so I was around for the original Star Wars. I was probably about 10 years old when that happened, so I remember the initial phenomena. Clearly, a different world back there, a world where people may have been, you know, sleeping out on sidewalks to get tickets to the brand new multiplex. So, you know, this is actually something with, with quite a history. But I agree with uh, the, the sentiment that this seems to be a successful, uh, relaunch is too strong of a word, but the most successful re-entry or sort of starting point to, to sort of reignite the, the, the uh, Star Wars fan base. So what I want to do to sort of put some structure to this discussion is to hearken back to the fandom analytics framework. And for those of you that are sort of jumping into the podcast, I I would refer you to a series we did in uh, early or sort of mid 2020, which we called Fanalytics University. So to sort of lay out the, where we're going to go, my belief that is that fandom is is something that we can analyze with a relatively simple structure. 
Um, the foundation for most fan bases is a it's a group of shared stories or narratives. These narratives are important because they are the foundation for the subcultures that uh, develop around different entertainment properties and sports. Uh, when these things work right, they provide value in terms of the identity that people can can gain from being a part of these. Uh, from there, we'll talk some about brand equity, a little bit about analytics, and the business side of The Mandalorian. So today is very much a professor and fan kind of episode. As a starting point, Doug, let, let's let's dig into some of the some of the narratives in terms of the Mandalorian, and and it, it's kind of an interesting uh, professor and student or fan episode in that the professor will be the one taking notes as we go through the conversation. So I, I want you to sort of go slow, kind of piece by piece. But when I talk about the the narratives, and we can go to season one or season two. Uh, for the Mandalorian, what are the what are the plots? What are the heroes? Who are the villains that have really resonated with you that are uh, kind of burnt into your brain at this point? Yeah. So one thing about the Mandalorian is there's an overarching plot, uh, but there's also a subplot which makes up the bulk of the episodes. Multiple subplots. Uh, so you got an A plot, and then you got B, C, D, E, F, all the way through Z. And at some point, you kind of get lost in, in what the actual mission is because you get so caught up on these little adventures. Well, let, let, let's stop there for a second and make a comment about the structure of this. So, you know, Star Wars has always been an interesting thing, right? It's always been, and, you, you know, tell me if my take is different from yours, kind of a Western, a space Western. And one of the things that they've done with The Mandalorian is it's almost like a buddy movie or a road movie. Right where they're they're traveling from adventure to adventure with some, you know, what you're saying is there there's a plot subplot A of every A B C etc for every episode, all building together for well wherever they're going with the show. Right, and like I said, the overarching plot <laughs> is uh, is about the child and his protector, the Mandalorian, and the Mandalorian uh, protecting him and, and seeing him to his. Uh, final destination with the Jedi where he belongs. Um, but the audience often loses track of that because we see so much of Mando's bounty hunter life and the fact that every time he finds a piece of information that can get him closer to uh, delivering Grogu, he f he finds you know a task that he has an obligation to do. It's kind of like in order for him to receive the help he needs, he's got to give help. And so we see a lot of him just helping out people across the galaxy in return for uh, getting one step closer to delivering the child. Okay, so in terms of the... So every episode has their own hero and villain, in addition to the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda. Uh, who is stuck with you? You know, who who is memorable in terms of the... The folks that he has met, that he has helped out, the folks that he has fought with on a week, to, you know, old school kind of thought about TV, but on a week to week basis. Yeah, Boba Fett is the big one recently, uh, the once believed to be deceased bounty hunter, and the original, uh, the original character to wear the Mandalorian armor coming back and being like, 
10 times as much as the BA as he was in the originals. He's been a fun one to follow in these most recent episodes. I think there's some nostalgia seeing his ship and the sound effects that you heard as a kid watching those films. But he's, of course, getting his own show, um, as as well as Ahsoka Tanu, who is the live-action version of an animated character that the diehard Star Wars fans have loved for years. And she's the first uh, live-action rendition of that character, so certainly a fun one as well. I think in season one, the guy that uh, that would say, I have spoken. I don't know why, for whatever reason. I think fans loved him, and I really liked him as well. I, you know, and I, it is kind of an interesting point. In, in some ways, and I don't think this is just me, uh, you're talking about the individual that helped him on his initial quest to recover the child and then get his, sh- his uh, ship fixed recovering parts from the Jawas. It is something fascinating about this, and this is purely in terms of the storytelling. I tend not to pick up the names of some of the characters on a week-to-week basis. And it's I'm not sure exactly, I'm not sure exactly why that is, but there's something about the, the nature of the storytelling and the spectacle that, you know, I know who the characters are, but I don't have names to go along with them. Yeah, I mean, even the Mandalorian, that's what everyone refers to the lead character as, which is a a very generic name. It's like calling you the American. And so I think it's a little bit the nature of the show. Uh, Boba Fett is an exception. So is Ahsoka Tanu. Um, Any of these cameos, Luke Skywalker, obviously. But for the most part... People kind of know the characters as, you know, the girl that is <laughs> a professional wrestler in real life. Well, Gina, Gina Carano, um, and she's she's an interesting one too, right? Because she she's been she's become a regular, and I can, and I think she's getting a spinoff series and all this. But I cannot actually think of her name. You know, her name doesn't pop into my head, and and so the character has been developed. But in some ways, the brand is, and you're sort of getting ahead, the brand is almost a little bit incomplete. Yeah, well, look at Baby Yoda. I mean, the showrunners were adamant that his name is not, <laughs> in fact, Baby Yoda. Uh, that was really a fan-driven name in season one. They wanted, the showrunners wanted it to be called The Child. Um, all the toys that they saw called it The Child, uh, The Child Plush Toy, The Child Action Figure. And then they named him Grogu, uh, you know, we come out with his real name in season two. Spoiler alert. Uh, if you haven't watched season two, you should probably not be listening. But Grogu is still referred to most frequently as Baby Yoda by the fan base. So that was something that the fans just ran with. Uh, I don't think Disney necessarily wanted that. I think they're trying to do their own thing and distance themselves from Yoda and not confuse anyone because the child is not, in fact, the baby version of Yoda, uh, and, and that throws off the timeline for some people because this is occurring after Yoda is already dead. Okay, so the Gina Carano character is named Cara Dune. Um, the, uh, so, you know, one thing that you have not noted in terms of talking about the, the Mandalorian so far is any of the villains that he has faced. Have there been villains that have you know, kind of jumped off the page, jumped off the screen at you that, you know, Star Wars is known for, uh, and, you know, a classic villain monster in, in Darth Vader. 
is there anything in the Mandalorian that seems to be rising to that level? There hasn't been, uh, and I don't think there will be a Darth Vader level villain on this show. Moff Gideon has been the the mastermind behind it all, as far as the audience knows up until this point. Uh, but it's kind of a lame Empire, lame edition of the Empire, because on this timeline, Empire's already fallen. So there's there's no Vader, there's no Sidious in control, there's no Empire in control. Moff Gideon's not really in control. He's trying to recreate something. Uh, but as we come to find out, <laughs> Sidious is actually in control down the line. But you know, I, I think it's hard to make an ultimate villain like Darth Vader when you have a person leading an empire that's already fallen uh, and that's trying to regain power but has yet to do so. So it's definitely not the same as Darth Vader. And, you know, and I, I, part of me wonders, is, is that one of the things that the show might be missing? <clears throat> that Moff Gideon is supposed to be this, you know, the, the, the villain, at least through his, in, se- in season two. He doesn't come across as that tough, does he? Doesn't come across as that frightening or powerful yeah so it's definitely not the same as darth vader even darth maul like i was saying before um or sidious none of those characters uh well all those characters use the force i don't think Hmm. moff gideon can i don't think he's he's a sith i think he's more of a general so in the world of star wars uh he's he's really not that powerful he's not that intimidating and there's not that joker bad guy there's not that iconic bad guy uh i really think the bond between baby yoda and you know that and the mandalorian is what keeps people i think that's the relationship and the character development that is most appreciated by star wars fans it is it is interesting that you reference the kind of the, the notion that he's more like a general than a uh, what do you what do you call it sort of it's the sith yeah you know sith. there there is a lot of kind of callbacks to you know, the Star Wars universe, obviously, um, you know, some continuing themes of, you know, one of the things that has always driven me nuts whenever I watch a Star Wars property at this point is why the Empire cannot pay for any training in terms of the marksmanship of the stormtroopers, why they insist on building vehicles, essentially tanks that can be pushed over you know, the, this Walker kind of concepts. So it's, you know, some of this, uh, obviously, you know, a lot of the storytelling elements are going to be borrowed from Star Wars. (laughs) Well, to be fair about the marksmanship, it, it's at its worst in the originals, in my opinion, (laughs) you've got scenes (laughs) where they're chasing someone in a narrow hallway and and missing them with the equivalent of a machine gun. So let's really just attribute (laughs) the poor marksmanship of the originals and the nostalgia of of watching stormtroopers fail to shoot anybody over and over again. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, the the empire likes to invest in ginormous weapon systems, but not the basics. Yeah, and invest in really big armies of people that can't hit anybody. Okay, so the narratives are, you know, continuing to 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 expand and evolve in this. I, I think you're right that the key is that in some ways this is a buddy movie between the Mandalorian with the Mandalorian, and, and you know, the, it, I think he is going to be known as Mando. You know, you had Apollo Creed calling referring to him as Mando in the early episodes. That he is, you know, he is linked to Grogu or or Baby Yoda. Now, 
and they are, you know, you think of any buddy movie that you love, any couple of cops, and there's a lot of those kind of element elements. What you know makes it distinctive, right, is that they are very different kind of creatures and ages. But the bond probably is the key. Okay, so the narratives are coming across. You know, there's a lot of good storytelling in there. Maybe a little bit of weakness in terms of having an over you know, kind of an ultimate villain, someone for you to really root against or, you know, that the hero struggles against. Um, now, you, you said early on in this that this is something that has potentially sort of reignited the Star Wars fan base after some disappointing movies and some struggles. It's hard to say struggles at the box office, but the the last several movies have been box office disappointments despite grossing Massive amounts. Um, so the narratives underlie some form of community. And this is really where fandom fandom tends to thrive, is when there's this subculture, when there's this group of people that share these narratives, they've got knowledge, they've got, uh, they, they share affinity for baby Grogu, for loving the Mandalorian. This is... I think kind of a, a new generation for fandom, especially in this COVID era where things are not happening at the theater, things are happening more online. So l- let me ask you this question. So what knowledge does someone need to be a fan of The Mandalorian? And, and I could even have a part two to that. What do you need to be a super fan? Okay, so these are two very different things. Uh, I think to be a fan, a casual fan, you could come in knowing nothing and and still appreciate the show. Uh, You can follow it without, (laughs) I guess, being super lost. I don't think it's that complex. And, of course, you're going to be introduced to characters like Boba Fett as if he's new, but I don't think there's any information that's vital to understanding what's going on. Uh, that that you would have had to have seen in previous shows or, or movies. I do think uh, it is much better appreciated by those who understand the history and have seen the originals, uh, the prequels, the sequels. So this is, of course, getting into super fan territory, uh, but the Clone Wars animated TV show as well. I think that one, especially with the Ahsoka Tanu episode, um, is important to have seen. Uh, the scene with Luke at the end, again, spoiler alert, uh, of the most recent episode, I think completely mirroring the Darth Vader scene in Rogue One where he has a hallway massacre. So there, there's so much that draws from the originals or draws from the prequels or, or Clone Wars or even Rogue One that I think uh, <laughs> I think the super fans certainly appreciate this show more than anybody, uh, and especially in, in the most recent episode. I think that was kind of the ultimate episode for the star wars super fan how they were able to take the original canon and build upon it that's um some of that's interesting to me Uh, you used a word in this canon what do you mean by canon define that yeah another great question from the professor uh canon i guess for fans it's that according to luke lucasfilm it's an official part of the the Star Wars universe's history because there's always been a lot of content created over the years and expanded universes where you see what unfolds in Luke's life or Leia's after the originals or you see certain characters and what's considered fiction, um, although I know it's all fiction, but what's considered fiction within the Star Wars universe as far as mythology, um, 
kind of thing. And then there's what Disney wants to control and, and the story uh, that they're trying to tell and, and make sure that, that there's no loose ends, which, of course, there still, <laughs> still are pl- plenty of loose ends, but they want to manage it as best they can. And so they have what is called canon, and it's kind of like the official nonfiction within the fictional universe. Okay, and I think this is an important concept, especially in thinking about fan knowledge of what's going on. I have not seen all of the Star Wars products. Um, I have not watched the Clone Wars. And so in, in some ways, when, you, when you're sort of half into this, a lot of this can feel fairly confusing, right? It's like, you know, well, I, I thought Boba Fett died but my but the last time I saw Boba Fett on screen was 1982, right? It, it, and so it is kind of hard to think about how to understand how how all of this fits together. So in, in terms of the storytelling, it's interesting. It's almost like there's this stuff is happening at two layers. There's the baby Yoda that your mom might be a fan of, and then there is this evolving universe that is out there for the super fans or the Star Wars geeks, perhaps. Perhaps um, it's it's also kind of an interesting thing from a marketing standpoint, and that you know th- this movie started out the the Star Wars franchise started out with with a kid working on a desert planet who gets enthralled in this uh, mission to rest who gets involved in this mission to rescue a princess. Forty years later, this thing has. This thing has an extensive backstory of the rise of the Empire in the first three movies. Uh, it has gone on from the Luke Skywalker era to, uh, in terms of the, the latter three movies, there is uh, you know all sorts of stuff in between, and it becomes an incredibly complex and almost difficult universe to to manage. Right? I mean, you think about other epics in the in the fantasy space. Lord of the Rings is probably the the, the classic example, right? That was constructed by one individual. So there was a real coherence and logic to the story. Now, in the case of the Star Wars universe, as this becomes more and more a, a driver of the Disney of the of Disney's success, there's going to be a tendency for this to all kind of spin out of control in a way. Yeah, and you can see it coming with the number of projects that they have on deck at the moment and <laughs> the fact that while his creative direction, or while there certainly is creative direction coming from Disney and certainly an overarching vision, you're going to have so many different creatives that are taking things in different directions. And when there's an overlap of characters, when you've got a guy like Boba Fett who was originally directed by a different director and written by a different writer um, and, and has this whole history. And now you have to maintain that and keep consistency with a whole new team and a whole new story. Um, I certainly think it is quite the challenge for Disney. But at the same time, it's something I feel like they feel they can't afford to to uh, <laughs> I know it's a double negative, but to not cash in on this fan base and the demand right now for Star Wars content, seeing what the Mandalorian has done for their Disney Plus platform, uh, which has become incredibly important, especially amidst a pandemic. So honestly, the timing for the Mandalorian to pop off couldn't be better for Disney. Well let's let's come back to let's come back to the business a little bit later. Now so the 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 subculture, the 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 culture of Star Wars fans has Quite a bit of material um, to 
you know, as the foundation for uh, quite a bit of shared material. Now, this might be a little bit of a strange question. How do you express your fandom? And I, I'll even extend that because, you know, some of this is kind of personal. How do you see others expressing their fandom? Yeah, well, I, I can answer the first one pretty well. I definitely, uh, it definitely passes the closing test <laughs> that, that you discuss in Fanalytics University. I have two different Star Wars shirts in my regular rotation, uh, so I wear them pretty frequently. And it, it is interesting in the film world because unlike sports, like I think anyone in college sports, anyone that's attended a college, well, anyone... Let, let me make a note on that real quick. So one of the things I will talk about in terms of sports fandom and why fandom is such a unique construct is it it, it kind of separates regular or traditional marketing in that people are willing to wear the uniform. They're willing to wear the clothes. There's something aspirational about it. And so for a entertainment product, you think about all the movies you've seen over your life, how many of them are so resonate so forcefully or so important to you that you're willing to sort of put a billboard on there and put that out there. So that's what we mean by the, the clothing test. And so you own two Two mini billboards, two mini billboards for displaying your love of all things Star Wars. <laughs> right, and like I was saying, uh, in film and television, it is a little more rare than than in sports because if I live in the city of an NFL team, I might wear the jersey or or the baseball hat of the baseball team. Uh, but if I've seen a movie, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to wear the <laughs> the T-shirt. You don't see it as frequently. Uh, people that wear T-shirts, it, it it tends to signal super fandom more uh, with films than than uh, for sports. So, and you mentioned that gym T-shirt. I do want to mention that. Shout out to this guy I saw at the gym recently. Uh, never never seen yeah. this before, but he was wearing a sleeveless. I guess it was a tank top with Baby Yoda on it. And it said, this is the way, W-H-E-Y. Okay, well, well, and how else do you put it out there? Or do you see people putting it out there? Um, you know, Star Wars has been known for toys. Do you have, uh, you know, and it's probably a, a tough one. You know, it kind of harkens back to those scenes in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. But do you have any Star Wars toys in the original uh, bubble bubble pack or whatever you call that. Uh. <laughs> I uh, I don't appreciate what you're insinuating here, <laughs> but um, no, I uh, that's not really my thing. As a kid, it was though. I mean, I certainly had the action figures and the Legos. I mean, the whole gambit, the lightsabers, the costumes. So as a kid, but as an adult, not really my thing. There are adults, however, that uh, are <laughs> into into such things and that do collect, and uh, you know, more power to those guys, but not not me. But I will say, I do uh, express my fandom on social media some, and I think social media and meme culture. <laughs> I mean, it's really evolved how people express themselves as far as what they enjoy to uh, partake in and how they share that. How they how they form a community um, in social media has been a great way for me. I think that's uh, I think that's a nice point about how some of this is evolving, right? So, you know, wearing a T-shirt, building a Star Wars model, having the figures displayed. You know, there there the the key word in all that is displaying, sort of publicly displaying your affiliation or your affinity for 
Star Wars or The Mandalorian. And so I think the distribution of memes, the social media, it is putting yourself out there, the individual putting themselves out there, connecting themselves, identifying with this with this uh with this subculture and it is probably one of the best signals and in a lot of this probably tends to start to move forward right it's like one thing to wear your t-shirt while you're at the gym versus to put it out there on social media and have your whole community and all your connections know that you are publicly affiliating with with Star Wars and in the Mandalorian so i think that's a very insightful and kind of powerful point in terms of where fandom is going. I I think it's pretty clear that the Mandalorian has been a kind of a real trigger for getting the Star Wars fan base back together, right? To to something something that they can build excitement around and start to share and and in a way. Yeah, I I think it really has garnered some trust (laughs) that Disney might uh might be able to make Star Wars content that satisfies the original fan fan base uh because i think the sequels probably were geared more toward today's younger generations that maybe didn't see any of the movies prior uh and that those guys probably enjoyed it and that's probably who they were marketing it to but they've got this huge fan base of people who love the originals or the prequels or the clone wars or any of the previous iterations of star wars and they lost trust uh i think when disney bought star wars there was some distrust and then when it became Disney-fied in the sequels, and and I certainly think <laughs> that wasn't the best thing uh, as far as keeping those in- initial fans. So seeing it stripped down a little bit, going back to that Western feel, I remember the first episode of The Mandalorian, that really felt like a Western with that bar scene right out the gate, seeing pistols drawn and feeling like, okay, we're back and and then kind of the small story that turns into a bigger story, much like Luke Skywalker. So it feels like Star Wars, uh, and I think it's given people hope, which we talk about all the time on the show, that maybe these other shows will have that same magic. Maybe the- okay, there's a lot, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to unpack in what you're what you're saying. I think what you're starting to get at is, you know, when we talk about fandom we tend to be talking about something that that feels kind of pure, right? So it's it's a connection to a piece of art or to sports, okay? But the reality is sports leagues are businesses and so are entertainment companies. And so when we think about Star Wars and, you know, you reference sort of the, it's, it's almost like there's, there's Star Wars before Disney and there's Star Wars after Disney, Okay, so this becomes a a brand in the Disney portfolio. It's a business that Disney is trying to manage, right? And and so this this gets tricky, right? And the, it's going to feel tricky right off the bat as soon as I make the next statement that Disney is now trying to make art with commercial appeal, right? That is, you know, the, those two things are in a way kind of and it there's always going to be a little bit of back and forth between art and doing something for a broad audience right it gets even trickier when you have something like the Star Wars universe right where you're not just trying to make a great film that is going to appeal to people you are trying to make property 1 that appeals to people that leads to selling property 2 that leads to selling property 3 
et cetera, et cetera. And so then when we think about how Disney is functioning, you can almost imagine that this is a very much a as much artistically driven set of products as a marketing driven set of products. And so like when I look at the Mandalorian, it, and I suspect we'll, you know, we'll both have some things that kind of drive us. Uh, I don't know if it, you know drive us a little bit nuts, but definitely things that while you're watching, you kind of go, "Why do they have to do? Why do they have to do that?" So when I think about how these properties or these projects are put together, you know, there, there, there's probably definitely some roles for analytics and all this, right? This idea of kind of using test marketing or focus groups to figure out what's going to work, and also in terms of thinking about what is going to build the, the the strongest brands? So let me ask you, let me ask you sort of a very specific question: the cameos, the casting. Mm-hmm. What have you thought about the stars that have popped up during the first two seasons? Yeah, I'm trying to think back to who popped up in that first season. Uh, <laughs> there's been so many people. Well, I'll, I'll start most recent and work our way back and. Again, spoiler alert, <laughs> if you haven't seen the last episode, probably want to put me on mute, but Luke Skywalker, the surprise cameo, the very end uh, in CGI form, and Boba Fett, probably those two and Ahsoka are the three that I knew really well going into this. Okay, well, let me, let, let, let's almost put these folks into two categories. So Luke Skywalker appeared, yeah. um, so... Borrowing from Star Wars Legends, let's say, is one category. Mm-hmm. So connecting the series to the the larger Star Wars universe. Boba Fett as well. Yeah, so you got those guys, um, and that's where I was going with this, is is there's also a collection of new characters uh, who, are, who are being introduced to all Star Wars fans for the first time. And so, <laughs> like we said, we have the, the female wrestler, uh, I this, I know this the sniper girl actually was in the Clone Wars as well. I'm blanking on her name. I'm so bad with names, and especially in these these movies and shows. Uh, oh, okay, let me let me let me sort of jump in because I know you always want to be careful about these kind of you know the, the, these kind of landmines that are out there. But there is definitely something that has happened in almost every action property that you now have to have what I refer to in my head as the badass woman or the kick ass woman. And so that is, in a way, that might be the most frequent character, guest character in The Mandalorian. There is almost always a, you know, and it's it's not just sort of an, an evil woman. There is a woman that is kind of kicking ass and taking names in every episode of this show. And that, you know, I think there is a tendency in that this has become so pervasive across just about every action show or film that it starts to feel a little bit forced. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I certainly think uh, a lot of the fan base feels that way. And, and I think it's reflective <laughs> of the time that we're in and the fact that maybe old star Wars always had the damsel in distress princess type figure. Um, although I would argue <laughs> princess Leia w- was not quite a damsel in distress that, that she stuck up for herself a little bit more than the cliche. Um, but you know, s- stories are now introducing all these women that can go fight and, and that are engaging in contact, which again, or in combat, which again is reflective of Disney and 
and the time that we're in and, and what they're trying to do. Um, but I think from a marketing perspective, I think there's a desire to appeal to all demographics um, and that there's maybe they feel that th- that they have something there with the female demographic with those characters. So I think as much as uh, it can feel like pandering to the PC police, to some fans and uh, trying to have certain characters and equal representation on the screen, I do think it's also a market. There's a marketing aspect to that uh, where it's like, okay, so I think where I want to take what you just said is to talk about the relationship between. So if star Wars fandom is about a subculture that people like to identify with, the reality is that that subculture is going to be affected or impacted by the larger culture. And, and that's important in a couple of ways. So number one, the, the material, the art is produced within the given culture, uh, the culture of the moment. And, and I do think that that can be a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge because it is hard to watch this stuff and not feel like identity politics is playing a role in terms of how everything is structured, right? And it's, it, it, I, it, it, to some extent, kind of has to take away a little bit from the storytelling because it, and not for any nefarious reasons, but because it starts to feel very formulaic, right? It's like, okay, so we're gonna see that United Nations of of characters, so that. I think that so that's a legitimate issue, and and again, it's like does that tarnish the art and diminish the the long term appeal of the art? You know, perhaps. Um, the the other thing that comes into play when I when I think about how the the larger cultural culture affects this is something that is really been kind of a significant phenomenon in entertainment for about the last let's say fifteen years, maybe ten years. And that is the mainstreaming of geek culture, okay? And so when people talk about geek culture, you can't help but think of them of things like Star Trek, Star Wars, maybe this Big Bang Theory show that was on TV for, I think, about a decade. And, and so one of the phenomena that we've seen in you know, post-millennial times is is like this idea of something, a popular subculture being taken and then blasted out for the mainstream, right? So if we think about something like the the Avengers, right? Comic books are kind of the height of geekdom, right? But they were able to transition that and turn the Avengers into the biggest movies of the last decade. And so the question then becomes, and this is always going to be a tricky one, and and you know, you tell me how you feel about this on an individual basis. If you were a Star Wars geek and they turn this into something that is more universal, and, and again, you know, Baby Yoda is probably the best example of this. If your mom is sharing Baby Yoda memes with her friends, what does that do to your to your fandom, what what does that right. do to how you think about all this? Right. Well, <laughs> does it feel like it's still yours? Yeah, there's a certain aspect of it where I think it feels <laughs> feels sacrilegious uh, <laughs> to the super fans uh, to see some of that. It feels like I think, especially with the sequel trilogy, that you know <laughs> this treasured past and in history is in in sacred originals <laughs> are just being uh, stomped on and and 
disregard it. And so I think there is an element of that. Um, I think even for me watching the last episode of The Mandalorian and seeing it go from one bad guy to now <laughs> you've got a thousand evil robots uh, and you start to feel like, is this Star Wars or is this a Marvel movie where the scale is becoming so grand that it's a little bit hard to believe? So yeah, I definitely think there's some concern amongst fans that uh that it's going to become like marvel and that it's going to become so mainstream and so manufactured that it loses some of its magic and we've seen that in, in some of disney's early works with star wars so i think it's a huge challenge for disney uh to maintain the artic artistic integrity of, of the show and while of course the they feel like they need to appeal to everybody and, and they need to be in touch with the times and they need to create something that's profitable as well and and something that can sell toys and action figures and lead to spinoff shows that draw even more dollars to Disney. So there is a business element of it. Uh, but there's also these fans that hold it so dearly that want to see artwork and, and want to see it uh, be done right. And so I think it's a challenge for Disney. Uh, but like I said... I think The Mandalorian has been the most successful iteration of honoring the past and also <laughs> profiting in the present and targeting the current generation and, and the youth of today. I sound old saying that, <laughs> but uh, to today's kids as well. Okay, so let's uh, let's let's think about how this Star Wars brand fits into the Disney portfolio going forward. So Disney is a Disney's an interesting company in some ways, especially in the COVID era. Obviously, Disney took major hits at the traditional box office, as that industry may have disappeared forever. The theme park business probably is also greatly diminished. But Disney was as I don't know if uh, Disney Plus predated the pandemic or came out. I guess it did, it did by quite a bit, actually, by by a year. That Disney is pushing towards this in-home streaming kind of business model. Uh, I, I looked it up. Disney has I think about twenty-five million or twenty-six million U.S. subscribers to the Disney Plus platform, which is kind of a fascinating number. That they are able to get so much traction in terms of, let's say, Baby Yoda, while reaching less than 10% of the, the U.S. population. Now, you know, maybe there's a lot of shared subscriptions in all this, uh, especially amongst the younger demographics. Yeah. <laughs> but the, well, while only reaching perhaps 20% of the population, I, I think you can make a case that Baby Yoda is the breakout fictional character of the last of the last couple of years. And so when we think about Disney moving forward, the uh, the Mandalorian as their biggest hit in terms of let's say original programming, has that now become completely, wedded to the is that going to be really the the model for how the disney plus subscription service survives and perhaps thrives in the future and, and so let me ask you this this question okay. it's like when you think about the disney plus obviously since you're watching the show you're a subscriber right how does your decision making regarding Disney Plus and maybe other maybe other subscription services, streaming services, 
how do shows like The Mandalorian play into your decision making? Well, it's really simple for me. <laughs> when there's new Star Wars content, I subscribe. And because it's a month-to-month subscription, I can unsubscribe when I've seen everything and I wait for the <laughs> next batch. So last year, uh, I had it for a good chunk of the year just because you had The Mandalorian and then you had the last season of Clone Wars where they were releasing a new episode every week of, of something Star Wars for quite some time. So that kept me around for a little bit. Uh, and then I canceled it in the summer and made it all the way up until this new season uh, to to start a new account, or I guess to renew my account. So I've had it for probably two or three months now. We'll, we'll probably be done here shortly in case they start releasing more content for, for Star Wars fans. So I think they've recognized that there's enough people doing what I'm doing that they've got to always be cranking out new content. Okay, always content and original content. So Disney has recently announced... A number of new products. We've we've referred to a couple of them here. The Cara Dune show, and there has been a little bit of controversy as Gina has a, a tendency to retweet conservative thoughts. Um, I, I, again, politics politics keep well. You know that that's kind of an interesting thing if you know the history of Walt Disney. But politics keeps creeping into entertainment. So a but still likely a Gina Carano show with her as a former, or I, I don't know when the timing's going to be, but as a Star Wars, a rebel grunt, as it were, a rebel soldier, uh, a Boba Fett series announced for December 21. Well, I don't know if that's a series, but some Boba Fett content in December 2021. Um, what else have they alluded to or officially announced? Well, let me let me frame the question a little bit more. Have they announced enough content and enough content in terms of the timing that they are going to push you to become a annual subscriber rather than a month to one month to month kind of opportunistic <laughs> consumer? Well, I, I will say I'll always be an opportunistic consumer uh, in, in every form of consumption. That's just how I am. But it does look like there's going to be so much that it's going to become difficult for someone like me to unsubscribe at, at any time. So another show that most people are excited about is Obi-Wan Kenobi's uh show that's going to feature Ewan McGregor who played Obi-Wan in the prequels but also Hayden Christensen who's reprising his role as Darth Vader uh, that's that's really what's created the most buzz and I believe that show's coming out next year so that's the one I definitely won't be able to miss and then obviously the Boba Fett show another season of the Mandalorian and uh, Ahsoka having her own show so some of these are scheduled out uh, several years down the line. There's going to be a movie called Rogue Squadron. Uh, I think it's 2023. And I don't know if that'll be an exclusive for Disney+. Plus. So that, that's something else to take into consideration uh, for subscribers. But um, it, it is happening. So there's there's a couple other movies in the works. And I don't know how much of those will actually come out. Sometimes, uh, sometimes these things get shut down before they, they make it out. But... Uh, animated show called Bad Batch, which is a, a Clone Wars slash Mandalorian, or I guess it's just a Clone Wars spinoff, but um, there is going to be a, a Clone Wars and a Mandalorian spinoff of Ahsoka. Uh, Rangers of the Republic as well as a, a Mandalorian spinoff. So 
Um, Lando getting his own show. I mean, there, there's just so much a mystery thriller show. I could go on and on. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what becomes of all these as far as ones that will have my subscription. It's definitely those, the Clone Wars show, but then other than that, just the live action shows, Obi-Wan, Ahsoka, Mandalorian, Boba Fett. Okay. So it seems like what Disney is betting on, at least in the near term, um, to, to really, I mean, I, I think if you, you look it up, the Mandalorian is one of the top, I think last week it was, well, this with the final episode is probably number one, but usually a top five streaming piece of programming. So it is their, it's their big dog and they're running with the dog for a bit. Now, the other side of this equation, the Star Wars brand, and let me, let me tell you a little just a little bit of background in, pro, in terms of what might be informing Disney's approach to managing the Star Wars brand. So there, there had always been a struggle with superhero movies. Spider-Man seemed to be the one that would always work, right? Sort of the, the big, well, on the Marvel side, Batman works, Spider-Man works. For some reason, Superman doesn't work. At some point, Marvel and Disney clearly came up with a plan of managing managing these properties not as one-offs but managing these properties as a collective and evolving group right so all the star all the avengers movies ended up being tied in and we got to see these characters progress when luke skywalker showed up at the end of the mandalorian i immediately started to to think oh my god i barely understand this timeline these timelines in Star Wars. And now I'm really kind of wondering what they're going to do with it. Right. So, so if you understand the Star Wars timeline, you had the, you know, you had the, the movies from the seventies and the eighties are in between the Natalie Portman, Hayden Christensen movies that, you know, about what, 50 years before 40 years before. And then you have the, the latest about what, 20 years after. Now you have moved Star Wars training Baby Yoda or Grogu right in between those. So you start to raise the question of, well, where's Baby Grogu in the the, the final three movies of, I don't know, what do we say, the trilogy of trilogies? Uh, And so you start to, do you need a brand manager, a visionary who is thinking about how all of this puts together? Who is that person? I, I'm sure Disney is doing that. And Grogu's like 500 years old, by the way. Uh, so he's actually been alive for all the Star Wars movies that have come out up to this point, uh, at least in the timeline. So, by the way, there were some hilarious memes uh, when it came out that he was alive and in the Jedi Temple when Anakin massacred all the younglings. Uh, because he was a youngling at that point, and, and we came to find that out. So he must have uh, must have survived, and that gives Disney ammo for <laughs> for a new show, maybe the Moses story of, of the baby that was uh, going to be massacred but saved by someone and, and would go on to become something great, and that is Grogu. Doug, can I, can I correct you? Uh, sure. And I'm, I'm illustrating a point here. Okay. So I, I I had remember 
my memory from watching the show was that he was 50 years old, Grogu. And I just looked it up and the internet confirms that I'm 50 years old. And, and the only reason I want to do this is because it highlights something about fandom, right? The, the, the hierarchy of correcting people and having more knowledge is, is a fascinating aspect of all of this because, you know, in a kind of a small throwaway point, but Grogu is 50 during The Mandalorian. Okay, so maybe a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> um, some hyperbole over here. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do think no, but 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 I mean, isn't the point kind of well taken that it's almost like we're now arguing over who is the better quarterback for the who's the best quarterback for the in the history of the Chicago Bears kind of argument, right? Like which fan knows every year their team won the Super Bowl or, or the national championship? <laughs> but I do think it is interesting that the character is older <laughs> than the Mandalorian, uh, his protector. And has been around for every movie on the timeline up until this point. So we'll see what they do. Um, I, I do know how profitable Grogu has been for Disney. Uh, <laughs> and he's not going to disappear <laughs> from the Disney films. I can pretty much guarantee you that. So I think we'll see a rescue story. But again, we'll we'll see uh, maybe a matured version of him down the road as well as, as a Jedi. I don't know if he survived for long enough to be in the sequels or beyond the sequels. Um, but you won't know <laughs> because you haven't seen them yet. So what, what Doug's alluding to is I have not seen all of the most recent three stars. So D- Doug's a super fan and I'm rapidly catching up. Oh, r- rapidly might be an understatement. Mike had not seen a single episode like two weeks ago and he's, uh, <laughs> he's seen all the Mandalorian. He's seen so much now. So one thing I do want to touch on that's fast, which is, fascinating you know in another little aspect of fandom right i mean you know the, the the pull of nostalgia on something like that to sort of go back to the the days of star wars and the empire strikes back that you know th- there's a couple of things one i mean the fact that how deeply ingrained those movies are in my in my psyche and in my mind that you know sort of jumping back in and, and look i'll also say this where i lost face with faith with star wars was the the movies that came out with uh with hayden christensen and uh and natalie portman that and i have a feeling that those actually were kind of really a a tough one for a lot of the the star wars fan base that grew up in the 70s and the 80s but it is kind of interesting that something like the mandalorian and having boba fett come back is enough to 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 pique my interest and kind of draw me back into this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I do want to touch on that's fascinating, and I think uh, we could do a whole episode on this in general for fandom, but it's how much fans love to hate their own franchise uh, that, that they're a fan of because nobody hates the new Star Wars movies as much as the big Star Wars fans. Like, nobody hates The well, Mandalorian. I went on Twitter and... Just type in words like Dark Saber or Luke Skywalker or John Favreau and the tweets, uh, <laughs> the majority of the tweets that come up are people saying, why did they do this? Why did they do that? You know, there's the inconsistency here. This messes up the last movie uh, where the wizards <laughs> with the laser swords were totally believable, but but now they're not. Uh, so it, it's funny to me because sports fans do that too. Like I'm from Alabama and Alabama in the midst of an undefeated season and a 14 point lead of an SEC championship game. I got friends 
tweeting to fire the DC and saying this is the worst defense they've ever seen uh, and they're miserable. But I think that's kind of part of being a fan. I think Star Wars fans are often miserable and it's hilarious to me how people who identify as fans of something just love to tear it apart constantly and complain about how it's just not what it used to be. Well, you know, I was going to ask you for your last thoughts, but I think that's a good place to leave it because I think what you've really kind of nailed down that the the thing that is shared, the idea, the concept that is shared across all the sports, because you're right, no one is as mad at their coach or their quarterback as the fans of that of that team, with the exception of maybe a guy like Tom Brady, right? That the the key construct is just this idea of passion, right? This this off the charts passion, and it kind of make it, it, it's the power of fandom, right? But it's like. I'm so into this because I'm so passionate about it, but I'm also so passionate that I'm going to go a little bit crazy for it. So with that, let's uh, put a wrap on, in fact, the year 2020. We will, uh, there will be no episode next week. And so I'll just uh, end by wishing everyone a Merry Christmas. How about you, Doug? Yeah, Merry Christmas, everyone, and a Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2021.